My first time was terrifying. My first time was scary. Exciting. Shocking. Traumatic. Sad. Awkward. Weird. Uncomfortable. It's depressing. A relief. I thought I was dying. Meh. <laughs> My first time was horrifying. <laughs> My first time was empowering. My first time. First time. My first time. My name is Janet Mbogwa. I'm a media personality from Kenya, the founder of the award-winning Inuadado Foundation, author of My First Time, which has inspired this podcast about first-time period stories, and I'm a mom of two amazing boys. It's important to me that we continue normalizing and mainstreaming taboo conversations through diverse voices, because when everyone is included, everyone wins. We often have so many questions about our periods, our health, and our bodies. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Claire Kinuthia, a gynecologist who unpacks some common period myths, shares easily accessible ways that we can manage our menstruation, and tells us why it's important to turn to experts about any issues or concerns around our bodies and our periods. So Dr. Claire Kinuthia, your first time period story. Um, so my first time was actually, it had a very special coming about because my parents prepared me just in time. So I'm one of the lucky ones, I guess, that way, because I had a conversation with mom and dad, both of them, um, about what a period is, what to expect when it comes, what it means. Um, they were very good with emphasizing that it's not dirty and it's not a bad thing. So I felt psychologically prepared for when it actually came. However, the physical part, mm -hmm. no one could have prepared me for because I've had period bad period pain from day one. That first time I was in a ball on the floor in tears. It was scary because I knew I was going to bleed. I just didn't know I was going to have that kind of pain. So in as much as I was sort of prepared for it, um, I had to learn very quickly that a period isn't necessarily a fun process. Um, it was painful. It was, I mean, it came with a PMS symptoms, which now I understand. But back then I'm like, why do I feel sick all the time? Why do I feel so bloated? Where's my appetite? Um, why do I feel tired? That was the most confusing. I want to play. I want to be active in school, but what's going on? Um, so it, it had both, both, a bit of both. But uh, in terms of being prepared, in terms of products to use, I think, and again, I guess it's because my parents are both in medicine, they're doctors. So they're pretty good at preparing me for the biological aspect. And then I had to learn about the emotional side, the physical pain, um, how to interact with people after that. And then, you know, you have the accidents when they happen and how embarrassing that can be uh, and bullying in school. I mean, once you're on your period, it's it's a different kind of experience. But for the most part, I think I remember it to be pleasant. <laughs> and how old were you? 11, I believe. Oh, so, so you're really... a fellow young, early Yeah, yeah, it was early. So they timed it perfect. Because honestly, it would have caught me off guard. I'd be like, yeah. hey? That <laughs> was me at 10 years old. Right, Just okay. Just pretty sure that I was dying. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so amazing that you had that prior knowledge and information, mm. which I'm sure even later in life, you were like, I'm lucky. I'm yeah, fortunate. No, I recognize it, that I'm very lucky to have had that preparation because 
I mean, I do have now patients. I do have younger girls that I counsel. And it's been, I, I hear the stories. I have listened to the stories. And the, some of them are quite traumatic because nobody prepared you. And then even when it did happen, you were treated like an outcast during that time or you were made to feel dirty. That's the word. Like girls are made to feel dirty during that period. Like you're unclean, untouchable. You shouldn't be ashamed. You should hide. Yeah. Those are the parts that shock me. Like you shouldn't be... Celebrate, and yet it's a celebration. That yeah. Now your body is capable of bringing forth life. It's something we should embrace as a good thing. And you're healthy. Yeah, and, and you're healthy and you're, and you're normal. Do yeah. you think that in some way, just being able to have the context or access to the information early, do you think it inspired your own journey into medicine or into the field of um, gynecology as well? Yeah, I think it did because... Because I had a positive experience and I started to hear my classmates' stories and actually even teach them because people would have accidents in class and then you're the one going to rescue them with your sweater and you're like, this is what's happening and I here's my pad, use this. And it sort of gave me this passion for women's health, passion for reproductive health, because I don't think we address it even now. It, I mean, the, some of the things I hear in 2022 yeah. are shocking. Mm -hmm. Like it's difficult to understand why we still make women feel lesser than or incapable, especially just because we are so powerful. I mean, if we're really told from the beginning exactly how powerful we are, I think we would be a force to reckon with. But I guess that's the problem. People recognize it and then they want to suppress it. So it did inspire me and I feel privileged and blessed that I can make a difference for young girls now and just generally making women comfortable in their own skin, basically. Yeah. yeah. I love how you say it. It's, it's if we knew how powerful it was from the onset, then we would be a force. I think that's a really powerful mm -hmm. line. And hopefully, you know, those who come after us will be able to adopt that kind yeah. of yeah. Um, mindset. Mindset from very to, early on. From very things, early yeah, on. Yeah. Um, that's why I think you're the perfect person to have this conversation <laughs> with, just navigating different elements of menstrual health mm -hmm. um, from people. So it's going to be um, a bit of a Q&A from questions um, across different communities. Yeah. Um, and one of them was, I've changed the pads I use and even tried tampons, but I always have an itch. Mm -hmm. So the issue around itch, which came up again, what could be the issue around products and itching? And itching. Um, so vaginal itching can have different causes, and especially when it comes to your menstrual cycle. The most common one, and which is really mundane and pretty much physiological, is change in hormones. So the way your hormones change during the time of your period can make the skin really sensitive. And so you get itchy. Some people have a burning sensation. Some people will have just sensitivity, like it's very difficult even to clean yourself properly. So it's not something that we always think of as abnormal. Um, there are things you can do as home remedies where you'd like warm sitz baths with uh, a bit of salt or baking soda in water, in warm water, and just soothe the area and calm it down. So that's like a natural way to clean yourself without causing irritation. We always advise like don't use um, rough cleaning products like a towel or whatever to clean that area. Just use your hands, clean water. That should be enough. Um, sometimes... Um, a soap that's not harsh, that doesn't have perfuming or any, you know, medicinal antibacterial kind of products, mm -hmm. then you avoid those so that you keep that skin as healthy as possible because it is very delicate skin. It's like scrubbing the inside of your mouth. Of course, you're going to end up with sores, so it can be quite uncomfortable. Mm. So other than just hormonal, it could also be products that you're using. 
it could be just as simple as the pads and the tampons themselves, but then you have to think beyond that as well. So what kind of underwear are you wearing? What mm -hmm. is the material that it's made from? We always advise for like cotton and breathable materials. It can also be down to the detergent that you're using. Or if you're using fabric softeners, we usually say don't use those for undergarments because it can really irritate your skin. So it can come down to your products. So beyond like what she was asking about, just beyond the pads and the tampons, you need to think about the rest of what's coming into contact with your skin at the time. Um, the other one, sometimes it can be an infection. Mm -hmm. And especially so if it's persisting. So if it's something that you're noticing every single time you have your period, and sometimes it does extend to beyond, the worst of it being just after the period, then you need to come in and we have a look because most commonly it'll be a fungal infection, candidiasis, um, which is not a bad thing. It's not transmitted from someone else. Mm -hmm. The vagina is clean. It's not sterile. So it has a balance of bacteria, protozoa, you know, fungal cells that balance each other out. And it's usually in an acidic environment, but then blood is basic. So it changes the pH of your vagina. Every time that you have your period, the pH will change. And so some will outgrow the others and cause those disturbances. So if you're having that persistent itchiness or burning sensation, just come in. It could be a yeast infection. It could be bacterial vaginosis. It could be many different things. So your doctor will help you come up with a diagnosis and put you in the proper treatment for it. There's two things I love about what you've just said. First of all, it's the fact that had we had this kind of information going into our period, right. probably helpful. Right. Um, the second one, which you've alluded to, which I think I take very seriously, is having an awareness of how your body works. Mm -hmm. So you can always tell if this is a normal itch, if exactly. this is extreme. Exactly. And that's something I'm always pushing for is have a relationship with your body enough to know that something is off. Something is off, yeah. 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 And don't normalize when it's off. Exactly. Yeah, which and, and tends I, to happen. Yeah, yeah, I keep saying, like, learn your body enough. I know we have a lot of shame around our bodies and we need to get rid of that mentality. So learn your body enough to know what's normal and then seek help. Like, if you're not sure, don't ask Google. Mm -hmm. Let's try to stop doing that yeah. <laughs> because it will almost always be cancer. Okay, yeah. guys, like, <laughs> like everything is just the world is ending. Yeah, the world is, so yeah. something. That's a good one. Yeah, though. So just yeah. come in, feel comfortable. Um, if you don't feel heard, I always ask people go for a second opinion, go for a third one, whatever you need, because sometimes it's difficult for us to hear you, especially so if you're going to like more general practitioner who doesn't have time to focus on each and every because again medicine is very broad so that's why if we focused on gynecology if you came in and asked me about your baby I wouldn't really know mm -hmm. what to tell you <laughs> <laughs> um, because my focus is reproductive and sexual health so go into the specialist and in Kenya we have that ability you don't need to be referred you mm -hmm. can walk into a specialist's office and just get that information again yeah. very important uh, to mention there's another question here about pain and swelling. So it says, when I'm on my periods, my right leg pains and feels like it's twisted at the ankle and it swells. Is it normal? For some people, it is. Um, we have what we call premenstrual syndrome, which is symptoms that happen up to a week before your period and can continue for a few days after. 
where your hormones are changing significantly. So what allows you to have your period is ovulation has happened and fertilization pregnancy has failed to happen. So in that scenario, then the body recognizes that, no, we need to go back and prepare for another pregnancy because that's just what our bodies do every cycle. So once your body registers that there was no conception, there's no pregnancy, we need to shed the lining of the uterus. And that's what our period is. During that time, it can cause a lot of changes. These are physical, emotional, mental, like you can go through a lot. So that's why you feel tired a lot more. You'll get bloated. You'll have things like nausea and feel just sick. Just smell of different foods makes you feel sick. Um, we have things like breast tenderness and then your pain start to come in. Um, that discomfort and then emotionally you just have mood swings mm -hmm. like you're just irritable from here to like or really sad <laughs> or really or sad really... yeah or just feeling down and lack of, like lethargic you don't have energy to do anything or you don't feel motivated some people actually have really extreme symptoms so in that case we have um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder PMDD which is the extreme form of PMS and those will actually need medication so if it's simple PMS there are things you can do at home and simple things like exercise adequate sleep managing your stress levels eating healthy drinking lots of water some of those will actually help with the symptoms so with someone who's actually getting to the point of swelling um, it could be water retention and a lot of that ironically, is because of dehydration. So you need to hydrate a lot more during that time. And then resting and using um, your basic painkillers. But again, if you have really severe symptoms, come in, come in and get treated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, going back to not normalizing a lot of pain, a lot exactly, of bleeding. Exactly. Um, because it means you could have an issue. Yeah. I think about the fact that, because um, I... Well, I I had ovarian cysts again. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't know it was the relationship with my body. I started my right. period years in. I was like, it's really heavy mm. and it's kind of painful. Mm. Something must be off. So I convinced my mom and I just said, I think I need to go get checked. So I had a laparoscopy. I feel like Dr. Kinuthia, since this is sidebar, <laughs> where I've said something wrong, we will edit. Because you'll be like, no, no, that's not, what it, that's not how you say it. And then turns out, though, that I had endometriosis right, okay. um, and was put on birth control. Mm. But um, I didn't normalize mm. the heavy bleeding mm -hmm. and the pain, mm -hmm. which still shocks me today that a lot of people have. They're like, oh, it's just my problematic period. Yeah, yeah. It goes on for 10 days or two weeks. True. But that's the thing. If you're mm. Googling things or you're not yeah. asking in the right places, they will tell you that this is normal because a lot of women have period pain. And to a certain degree, a lot of it is primary, so there's no underlying cause. But then when it's extreme and when it's debilitating, there's more likely than not a pathology going on. So we do need to investigate those. Do women tell you why they've not sought help before or why they don't ask? Is it tied to the shame and stigma or is it something else? Um, it starts with the shame. It starts with the fact that a lot of women don't even know First of all, not just how their bodies work, how their bodies look. Mm. It comes down to that simple. So there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of um, embarrassment and feeling like because, and especially so, it's more like cultural and traditional. My mom told me periods are painful. So that's what it is. Or so-and-so in school has gone through this and the nurse says it's normal and we take Panadol and we're supposed to pretend it helps. So a lot of people uh, just don't ask for help because they're assuming they'll be told it's normal. That's the first thing. Or they themselves assume it's normal because if you've had painful periods from day one and it's been gradually getting worse for you, you just think, okay, as I get older, it gets worse. And then there's the 
old wife stills. Once you have your babies, it'll improve. Once you do this, it'll improve. Once you, you know, so you're constantly waiting for that time to see if it'll get better. So asking for help tends to be the secondary thing. The other thing is um, financial. A lot of women assume it's too expensive to see the doctor or have tried and have been told, yeah, this service. Um, again, you come into health industry, we're asking you to do so many different tests. It becomes almost impossible to manage. And if you're not earning or if you're dependent on someone else, then it becomes difficult to come in and see your doctor when you need to. Uh, again, it also comes down to whether your parents have that information and education, because if you go to them and they feel like you're just bothering me, there's no need for you to go see someone. Or if you're going to see someone, isn't that inappropriate? Because mm -hmm. some parents feel like the exams that we have to do or the questions we're going to ask are intrusive and inappropriate for this child of mine who's still a child as far as I'm concerned. So there are many things, there are many factors mm -hmm. that stop women coming in, in good time especially, yeah. That's so important to highlight. Yeah. And it, it just perpetuates, I think, mm -hmm. a, a feeling of not loving your body and yeah. feeling like it's disconnected from who you are. Like I'll deal with my body yeah. as and yeah. when I need to. Yeah. Um, there's an issue around nausea, mm -hmm. frequent nausea before or after menstruation, whether mm -hmm. that's normal. Yeah, so it's the same thing. It falls under the common symptoms when you have a PMS, premenstrual syndrome. So it's something that can be managed, especially if it's really bad. There are medications we can put you on. But then, like I said, it's, it helps if it's mild or it's something that's manageable. You can try natural remedies. So anything with ginger tends to help. So if you're a biscuit person or you just like chewing on ginger or making ginger tea, whatever, it tends to help quite a bit. Um, your diet and your exercise will help as well because if you're eating healthier, more fruits, veggies, lots of water, it helps with the bloating, it helps with the nausea because the main difference is the way the hormones behave, they change the way your gut behaves and digestion. So if you're still eating really unhealthy, you have a difficult time digesting and then you're con constantly bloated and constantly nauseous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's a question here about how contraceptives affect menstrual health. And we know contraceptives is a very broad topic, a <laughs> yeah. very important one, but the link with menstrual health. Okay. Um, my role, I feel, with this question is to just debunk a whole bunch of mysteries, myths that come with contraceptives. Um, we use contraceptives in many ways beyond just contraception. So the idea that contraceptives will harm your menstrual health is something we need to just get rid of that mentality. So you do have changes that can happen depending on the type of contraceptive you're on that can affect the way your menses come. So some of them will stop you from having a period altogether. Uh, others will interfere so that they become quite irregular. Others will cause, and these tend to be more of a side effect than anything else, it will cause heavier bleeding or prolonged bleeding during the time of your period. So it depends on the contraceptive that you're on and we can go into those details another time. Mm -hmm. But generally, um, if you are on the correct contraceptive for you, it shouldn't be causing too many changes with your body. A lot of women don't have a problem with their period disappears altogether. Mm -hmm. They're like, I'm saving money yeah. <laughs> I'm and I'm dealing. I don't need this stress, you yeah. know. <laughs> so um, we also, so in that scenario, then it's fine. If it's a side effect of the one you're on and you're comfortable with that, that's fine. The myth around it that I would like to debunk here is that it's not that your period is retained. Because a lot of women believe if I'm not bleeding, where's that blood going? That's the question I get. Okay, Dr. Arisawa, you've said this contraceptive will stop my period. Where is this blood going? Is it mm. cumulating somewhere? And how is it going to affect my health later? So most contraceptives, especially hormonal ones, stop you from 
ovulating. And like I said, the reason we get a period is because ovulation happened. So if you're not ovulating, you're going to find that your period is more likely than not going to skip. And then the other reason is it thins, uh, they tend to thin out the lining so much that there's really nothing to shed anyways. So you're, you're not collecting blood somewhere. It's not that it's accumulating, accumulating somewhere in your body. It's just that you're not forming the lining in the first place because ovulation isn't happening and the lining itself isn't forming. So then you don't get the bleeding that happens. So it's completely normal. The other thing is, we, like I said, we use contraceptives to manage many medical conditions around your periods. So if you have really bad pain, if you have very prolonged or very heavy bleeding, or if you have, like you said, diagnosis like endometriosis, some people with uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome and mm -hmm. other type of conditions that affect their menstrual cycles, we will put you on some sort of contraceptive as treatment, mm -hmm. <laughs> not for contraception. That The contraception in that part is the side effect. So your doctor will find out from you if you're interested in fertility or conceiving at the time. If you're not, then you're fine to use a contraceptive. So the myths where you say uh, using them for a long time or being on a contraceptive in the first place is going to cause you to stop being fertile. It's going to affect your fertility. That's not true. The other thing that women have a fear for with a contraceptive is if it stops my period and then I come off the contraceptive and it takes a bit longer for my period to come back, does that mean I'm infertile? And again, that's not true because I said ovulation has to happen for yeah. your period to come. A lot of times you come off a hormonal, long-term hormonal contraceptive, it takes a bit of time for the hormones to clear and for your body to start ovulating again. And a lot of women will conceive even before the first period because ovulation happens, they get pregnant before they ended up having a period. So these are not abnormal and it's important like we just keep having this information, get your information from the right sources so that you understand how, again, how your body works and how the contraceptive that you're choosing works. I disagree greatly with people who go for over-the-counter contraception because you haven't had the examination, the medical history that we need to make sure that this is a safe option for you. Even in the most basic facilities, contraceptive uh, counseling is available. So you, that is a session in and of itself. You don't have to come in knowing what contraceptive you need. You don't need to understand everything about everything in terms of even how your body works. Come in, ask the questions. I encourage my patients to write things down. Write questions down and come and ask me. Me, imagine. I'd rather me than Google. <laughs> mm -hmm. So come in and ask the questions. If you just want to know what's available and you're not yet ready to pick an option, that's also okay. And then that way it'll be less scary when maybe some of the side effects happen. You understand that this is something that I can be treated for. I can go in and have it sorted. And then I continue on with this contraceptive. And your emphasis on somebody coming and asking a doctor is also because everybody's body is so different. Exactly. Everybody's period is different. Exactly. Um, and the issue with going online is that it's there's no one size fits all. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think can be really dangerous and mm. um, turning online for help. There might be clues here and there, but much like you, there's emphasis on have an expert examine your body mm -hmm. and understand what works best for what you. What works best for you. In fact, it's one of the things I discourage is that mentality that you're going to see the doctor or the medical practitioner and they tell you what to use. That shouldn't be the mentality you come in with. Mm. You shouldn't be waiting for me to tell you, okay, so you, just by looking at you mm -hmm. somehow, I'm supposed to be able to say, no, it comes down to what your lifestyle is like, um, discipline with pills versus wanting something short-term or long-term. And the way different ones will behave with your body will be different. So again, it's not cast in stone. You come in, we try one method. If it doesn't work, we are 
allowed to stop it and change to something else. So it's not, I mean, this is a, a conversation we can have forever, but there's a lot to learn and unlearn and yeah. learn the right information about contraceptives. Yeah. Really helpful. Um, what are your thoughts as a doctor mm-hmm. on ensuring the most hygienic use of reusable products? All right. So when it comes to... Um, menstrual hygiene products, especially so when it's reusable, I, I would advise right from the get-go, the way they're made is where the issues will start. So what uh, materials are we using? Are they safe? Are they hypoallergenic so that people will not react to them? Are they easy to clean and then reuse? Because those are the factors that will affect your ability to use this product properly. Um, instructions are so important because different products will be different, will need different kind of care for you to be able to reuse it. Um, so you need to be very specific with when you're creating that product, just telling us how do we use this product? How many reuses are allowed? How do we clean it in between? And that will help the person who's using it understand properly so that they don't put themselves in any danger. Then the next step would be access to clean water. Mm-hmm. I think that's vital. For you to be able to make a decision on a reusable product, if you don't have clean water, that's going to be the beginning of all the problems, especially so insertables. So then you have all sorts of contamination, even from the water that you're cleaning with. So it looks clean, but because you're using dirty water or it's not sanitary, then you put yourself at risk for infections. So access to clean water is so, so vital. Even as you're giving the information on how we clean this product, then we need clean water. And then storage. So even with non-reusable ones, Mm. like I, I like to ask women, how do you store your tampons? Janet, how do you store your tampons or pads? Okay, tell us. <laughs> tell us. <laughs> tell us, please. Well, that's funny because this should come easy. But I I try to store them in a cool, dry place. Mm-hmm. So that's a good answer. It doesn't tell me anything, but that's a good answer. <laughs> that's an easy out. <laughs> so it's as basic as uh-huh. it comes in a package. Mm-hmm. Keep it in the package. Oh yeah, keep it sealed, sealed in the packet until package. you need to use it. Exactly. Yes. In the in a drawer that is assigned if you can or even just a corner of a drawer where the, like you said cool dry clean space. Mm-hmm. Then the next one where we are all culprits is where do you put them in that handbag? when you're mm. using them. Because most of us, you throw into that tiny pocket with the keys and the coins and the, mm. that's where your contamination will start. Mm. So it's not just about, we always tell you, wash your hands before you change and then after you change. No, but if the product is in a dirty space, you'll transfer from the cover to the product mm-hmm. and contaminate again. So if you can have like a special bag, a little pouch for them, and that's where you keep everything, mm-hmm. again, sanitary and clean. And when you're not using, you put it back with the rest where it can be safe. It's the same for reusables. As long as like they come with good instructions, then how you're storing them and how you're packaging and carrying them around will also contribute to whether or not it's a safe product to use. So those are just simple ways to think about a reusable product. And then information and mm-hmm. understanding because... Um, there's, again, stigma and shame around reusable products because then it's like, oh, you can't afford that. I didn't I didn't know there was like a championship <laughs> competition. No, everything is about the Olympics. It's like, like the menstrual like, Olympics. It's like product. <laughs> I'm just like, can we just yeah, can use we stop? what we need? Yeah, can we stop? Can you stop? Because oh, I'll no. use what I'm comfortable with and what I can afford. So there's actually a stigma about, oh, you're using reusable because shame. Yeah, you can't because you afford. you can't afford. Oh, gosh. You, that although, I be... mean, for schools, it's 
perfect for those who yeah. can't afford but as a woman let me like, have my let choice let me just have my choice if this is what i'm comfortable with why would you then make me feel bad about what i'm comfortable with mm-hmm. and who said it's about the money like why are you these assumptions that we make we compete already on so many I other know. things i didn't know this was a thing that you'd have shame because oh i don't want people to know i use something that's reusable so how can i because i've had um an example of a patient who was having constant infections and the problem was cleaning and letting it dry properly was the problem because then people will see that I'm using a reusable product and just that i mean exposure to all sorts of infections mold and especially fungal elements then we're retreating you for the same thing i had to stop and ask okay what's going on mm-hmm. help me understand because i need to find the cause because this constant treatment isn't working so what's causing it and that's when i learned that there is stigma around reusable products which i thought i mean honestly blew my mind because yeah. i was like are you serious right now well, how did it end for her <laughs> was she just able to learn how to use it better did she have to switch to disposable what ended up so happening? for her we had extensive conversations about how to clean and dry properly and then store and when she was able to find a space where she could do it and feel okay nobody's going to know or nobody's going to see and especially so in a situation where you're in a boarding school mm-hmm. that would make it very tricky so um for her she ended up being able to use comfortably um high reusables but then with more frequent buying because then she wasn't able to use the same thing to the maximum it's allowed just again because she'd be like okay at some point there are some points in the term or the point of where i am if if i'm at home or versus i'm at school i'm not just not able to keep up with the levels you're asking of me dr <laughs> so buy them a bit more frequently yeah yeah The next question almost speaks to a lot of what you've said which I believe people like you are already activists just mm-hmm. by the fact mm-hmm. that you're helping women navigate their health and their bodies which mm-hmm. it's not only admirable it's so important because then it's also in a way allowing women to reclaim their bodies mm-hmm. which for the longest time we've been told your bodies are just for either carrying life or anything but for you to yeah. enjoy yeah and so What role do you think medical experts play in ensuring access to information, products, and also just embrace embracing menstrual health, embracing a woman's mm. body? Mm. I think we have a huge role to play because the reality about me- medical professionals is we are pretty much godlike when it comes to healthcare. That's our field. Yeah. We're the ones with access to the information. So, it's more about agreeing to come to the level of everyone else and teaching educating informing and then there's this controversial point i'm going to state that will make me not very popular <laughs> it's a safe space to go ahead <laughs> um accepting that we don't know everything and taking the time to learn so that when you're teaching you're not passing on even worse information you're not putting your patients or your um the women coming to you or the people coming to you for their health care and health information at even more risk mm-hmm. so learn what's current learn what's available especially with products there's so much available that even i have to consciously go to the supermarkets and the chemists and see for myself okay so this is this this is what this is because then i how else will i advise you if i have no idea what's available especially where you work where your space is so that you can give the right information to the patient as they come in um so learning taking accepting mm-hmm. that things are changing <laughs> the world is evolving we are now a global village yeah. so people will come in and ask about a product you've never even heard of 
because it's available in the US or in the in Europe and they've seen it online. So is this something that's accessible here? So learn and then inform and teach the right information. So um, also becoming accessible ourselves. So we are constantly working, that's the reality. And it's difficult even to, like for me, even the balance of, okay, I want to share information, but I also have a very busy clinical practice. What's the middle ground? Creating that space where you can give information if it's in your church, if it's in schools, if it's in your practice, and you're able to have little projects where you can create space that people know, okay, this doctor gives has this session on these days and in this clinic, we can come in and get that information. Or the best tool that's easily available, go online. Don't be shy. We're very shy. We're very, we prefer to be behind the scenes. I'm an outlier when it comes to that. <laughs> yeah. But I encourage more and more doctors to just embrace the internet because there's so much harmful information. The only way for us to combat it is if we provide the useful, accurate, accurate and useful information, information and make it easily available. I, I, the argument I keep hearing is no, but you see, you can't see patients online. You can't treat adequately. I'm like, I didn't say treat them. I didn't say give medical advice mm -hmm. to the point of treatment levels. It's give information so that they can then know this is not normal. Let me come in and have a conversation with the doctor and then we will treat you properly mm -hmm. in that space. So we have so much, so many options now. You can be online, you can have virtual sessions, you can have consultation online as well, up to a certain degree. I'm still a traditionalist when it comes to that. I can't treat you effectively off a screen, right. but it's, it's, we shouldn't be hoarding the information. We should be able to share it as much as possible. The other thing that doctors refuse to do, and I think we should do more of, get in the spaces where you can contribute to change. Get in government, <laughs> get in the NGOs, be a voice for the policies that are being created. Have your voice, have your say when it comes to reproductive health decisions that are being made. When those policies are being written, when those laws are being enacted, we should be the ones advising. It shouldn't come from purely religious or cultural backgrounds because those can really misinform. Like we don't, I don't rubbish them but then we can marry the two and find a respectful balance because complaining from behind the scenes isn't going to get us anywhere. So as scary as it is, and sometimes we choose not to because we're not as loud and crazy as some of our politicians. Right. We're like, huh, I don't know if I'll be able to. <laughs> so you went behind the scenes, but yeah. to your point, get on the table exactly. and um, be able to implement what you exactly. know. Exactly, exactly. Because that will actually make a huge difference. And then we'll be able to give accurate information from the ground level, grassroots level, because when it comes to, for example, healthcare, we have lots of guidelines that are made on the national level and disseminated all the way to the grassroots. If I don't contribute to that, by the time my colleague is working in a village with limited resources, is getting the information, they don't know what options are available. And they're going by the book because that's all that is available. So let's it, that would be the biggest way we can make a change. And we can actually create um, sources, reliable sources of information. A lot of this information is given for free by government. So why not make sure that it's as accurate as possible? That, okay. That's what I think. Thank you. <laughs> I just, I, I, I love being able to have conversations with people who are not just passionate, but knowledgeable and mainstreaming. Mm. I mean, the biggest reason I created this platform was to mainstream a lot of this information yeah. so that it doesn't feel inaccessible but also just to share the, the truth and 
what people need to know. So thank you for sharing your truth in such a passionate way. Absolutely. And for caring (laughs) and for doing the work you do. We hope to have you on again very soon. I would be excited to do that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my First Time Stories podcast, where we're pushing for menstrual justice one story at a time.